Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be looking at primarily verses 1 through 12, but we're going to go through the whole chapter, so we'll read the whole thing today. We'll read the whole thing today. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 is what we're focused on, but I'm going to read all the way through verse 23 to get the whole story, and there's some prophecies that we're going to look at that go throughout. So let's... Uh, dive into the word this morning and read together. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed their own country to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to, to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to, fill, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in, in, and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, 
An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise and take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah in the, Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. That was that was that what was spoken by the prophets might be filled. He shall be called a Nazarene. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his words. So this is one of my favorite stories of Jesus. Um, favorite stories of Jesus when he is born. It's the wise men. And we uh, always had the picture of the wise men when we were growing up. Uh, when I was little, you always had this, this scene of the wise men three of them, right, coming, bearing gifts before the king, and they stand together. Now, we don't know how many there are. I just want to point out the things so that nobody sends me a text or an email. Yes, you're right. We don't know how many there are. Uh, There are three different types of gifts given, frankincense, gold, and myrrh, and they are given by these wise men or magi. So typically in the nativity scenes, you always see three. Now, there were probably more that came together because this is an envoy, a large group of people that are hard to miss. And you know that they're hard to miss because it said all Jerusalem was troubled with Herod. Everybody there was troubled because these guys showed up. So this is a large group of people all showing up to find a baby, to find a kid, uh, to find a king. And they went to the capital city. They went to the, the place where the king is supposed to be. And they show up and he's not there. And so... Uh, They go and find him in a small, obscure village outside of the major cities. And they find him there, um, a little child. So, I always loved this story uh, for two reasons. One is the imagery that it sets forth of the world, the pagan world, showing up to worship when the people of God have not paid attention and stayed in their place. They have stayed in their place while the world shows up to worship God. It just seems like this massive juxtaposition. Those who are supposed to be worthy of the worship of God don't show. And those who are unworthy of the worship of God show up. And it's incredible. So that's the first reason I've always liked this story. The second reason I've always liked this story is because it just comes out of left field. It's just out of nowhere. There's no rhyme or reason for this story other than God wanting to show his sovereign, incredible nature. Take note of what he does in the story. He has Jesus born in Bethlehem because of a census, which we learn about in Luke. He has Jesus born in Bethlehem. He has four prophecies fulfilled in this chapter four of them, and they're all obscure. They're all bizarre. One of them's that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. One of them's that he's going to go to Egypt. One of them is that there's going to be weeping and crying at his appearance. And then one of them is that he's going to be a Nazarene. They're all obscure and strange, and how could they possibly happen? 
How could this possibly happen? How could you have a guy born in Bethlehem who's going to grow up in Nazareth? Those are two very different places. Bethlehem is down-home Jewish country where all the people are Jewish. Nazareth is Galilee where it's mixed everything. It's a melting pot. How do you get a guy who's from Nazareth to go back to down-home Jewish country to have a baby and then raise him in Nazareth? Never mind how you get him to go down to Egypt first. How do you get him to do that? And the answer is real simple. God does what he wants. It's really simple. It's not complex. It's not complex. It's not difficult to understand. God does what he wants. He does it the way he wants, how he wants, when he wants, and why he wants. And we get to be a part of it. And that's what I think we miss often, is that we get to be a part of it. We get to be a part of what God is doing. And though it seems silent and obscure, God is doing it. So, let's dive right in. Verse verse 1 of chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So this very first verse is after, first note, this is after the birth. So Jesus has been born in Bethlehem at this point, and we're struck by something immediately. The Jews missed it. They missed his birth. It went right past them. He has been born, and nobody has built him a palace. Nobody has gone to see the king except some obscure shepherds. Nobody has been uh, faithfully pursuing the Lord. We know that they missed it because Herod goes, Oh no, scribes and leaders, what did we miss? And they go and look it up, and it's right there. It's not confusing. They know exactly where the Messiah is supposed to be born, and they were supposed to be watching and anticipating, and instead, they did nothing. So the king has been born, and they missed it. And they not only missed the birth, they missed the continuing movement of heaven. Their eyes were not looking above to see what God was doing. They weren't searching for the star. They weren't paying attention to the things that were happening in the heavens. They weren't paying attention to the things happening around them. Their eyes were completely focused on their own world, their own works, and themselves. So Herod the king is in power, and he's a puppet king. We've talked about this the last couple of weeks. He's a puppet king. He's a uh, king that's been placed there by Rome. He is uh, tenuous in his authority at best. It is unlikely that he has any actual authority. His authority is very tenuous. It's just Rome could at any point come in and cut him off. So his authority is there, but it's suspect. At any moment, he could be shut down. He believes himself to be important. We know this from history, that Herod thought himself to be of great importance. He built a palace. He rebuilt part of the temple. He was... He was trying to rebuild the kingdom of the Jews in hopes that politically he could take the lead and save the Jewish people from Roman oppression. He was a ruler demanding allegiance from people, though he himself 
was subject to another ruler. He was a ruler demanding allegiance from people, though he himself was subject to another ruler. Further, he set up high places and idolatry all over. He just returned Israel to an idolatrous state. They were essentially living in wickedness, denying the greatness of the God that they claimed to serve. At that, he thinks that he is in charge. Note the contrast between Jesus and Herod. As we read through the Gospel of Luke in the coming months, what we're going to see is Jesus gives little regard to the authorities that are above him. Oh, he obeys their commands and edicts, but almost out of apathy and to ignore them. Remember the story when they ask him about the poll tax. Should they pay this tax or should they rise up against Caesar and, and say, we're not paying this tax, it's illegitimate and it's wicked and we're not going to pay it. And he says, give me that coin. And he holds up the coin and he says, whose image is on this coin? Now the wording there is really important because he's asking a question that's actually kind of a trick question. Whose image is on this coin? Well, God made all image. Man is made in God's image. And there's a picture of Caesar's face. Whose image is on this coin? Jesus is saying, I own the guy on this coin. I own the guy on this coin. And the people around him go, Caesar. And he goes, all right, well, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. So Jesus points out that they missed the point. The image is the image of God. This is God's. And then he says, that's all right. Caesar doesn't mean that much to me. Caesar can't stop us. Caesar can't stop God. And hands him the coin. Pay the tax. What does it matter? You see, Jesus operates towards God. He's not subservient to any government. He is only in agreement with God's governance, and yet he acts obediently to the governments around him, not because he's subservient to them, but because they are inconsequential to his power and his authority and his strength. The government is inconsequential when compared to Jesus. He doesn't bother to defy the government because the government can't handle him anyway. He doesn't need to defy them. And then, so that's the setting, right? We've got this setting. Herod's king, the Jews have not been paying attention, and all of a sudden there's a plot twist. Magi from the east show up. They come from the east here in verse uh, 1b and 2. It says, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose, and we have come to worship him. Can you, can you imagine your king in Jerusalem, your Herod, let's say that you're Herod, you think you're very important, you are trying to hold it together. Rome is constantly sending more taxes, more taxation. They just demanded, in the last two years, they've demanded a census that has up your people all irritated and in an uproar, and you've been dealing with it for two years, and you're struggling to maintain your tenuous control as a puppet dictator. And you got these, this royal envoy that comes from some country in the east. Doesn't tell us where, they're just from the east. And they look foreign, and they act foreign, and they speak your language, but not well. 
And they come in and there's a bunch of them. And they're this military royal envoy. And they come in and they say, We saw the star for your king. Where is he? And you look at them and you go, I'm the king. I'm the king. And they go, no, no, not you. The one born king of the Jews. We, we saw the star. We've come to worship him. Where is he? So not only has your kingship been denigrated to nothing, not only has your kingship been denigrated to nothing, but you have also, you have also just been told, hey, you don't get to stay king. You don't get to stay king. This isn't yours. You don't get to have it. You go, and the wise men look at you and go, we've come to worship this king. Now, where these guys come from, we don't know. There's all kinds of speculation that whether they are uh, people of a prophetic school of Daniel that's left over a hangover from the exile, or whether they're just random astrologers who have paid attention to the skies and watched the skies, or whether they're actual royalty from the east. Uh, we don't know how far east. We don't know if they're from India, if they're from uh, e- even the Orient. We don't, we don't know. We don't know where they are. We don't, we don't know where these guys come from. We just know that they show up out of nowhere and that they're not Jewish. They show up out of nowhere and they're not Jewish. And we, we can suspect that they're not full. If they are Jewish, it's a lineage that's been kind of uh, diluted over the years. But they, they aren't um, full Jews because they show up and they don't know Malachi, they don't know Micah, they don't know the prophecy, they just know they saw a star and somehow they know that that's the king of the Jews that was born. And they, they know that he is worthy of worship. Now it was common in the ancient Near East to believe that a star appearing in the sky, a unique star appearing in the sky, signaled the coming of a king. We also don't know much about this star, to be honest. There's a lot of speculation, a lot of movies and books and things that have been written about the star. I want to be very clear, those are all speculation. No matter how much research people put into those things, it's speculation. And it's fun speculation, don't get me wrong. It's a delight to get to read those things and and go, yeah, I think this and that's amazing. And maybe it was an angel, maybe it was a star, maybe it's... Uh, what, what is it, Jupiter and Saturn coming across each other in the, the, the constellation of Leo the Lion, like all these various things, and under the Virgin, const- the Virgo constellation, maybe all those things you know, come together and you get Jupiter and, and all these planets in line and it makes this huge star, maybe. I mean, those are fun to speculate about, but those are just speculation. What we're told about in the scripture is these magi from the east saw a star show up and went, oh, the king of the Jews is born and started walking that direction and went, okay, we go there. Like, that's what happened. It's insane. It's crazy that, that this is how this happens, that the star shows up and they go, yep, all right, cool, that way. And they get their presence and they start to go. It doesn't make any sense at all. And yet... It makes perfect sense because he's king. And so they asked the king of the Jews to go to Herod, asking the king of the Jews, where is the king of the Jews? <laughs> Man, wouldn't you love to be in the room <laughs> to watch that face? I'm, 
I'm the king of the Jews. <laughs> where is the king of the Jews? And they said, where's the one born king of the Jews? So they've got this ancient lore of a star showing up. And the... Don't miss it. Don't miss the majesty of this. The people of God are so consumed with the things of earth that they miss the arrival of their king. The people of God are so consumed with the things of this earth that they miss the arrival of their king. Whereas the magi from the east, who are not the people of God, see a star and they follow it. Now, I don't watch star, I don't pay attention to the sky enough to note a new star showing up. These guys had to be watching in in expectation that something was going to happen. They had to be paying attention. I don't don't stand outside and go, okay, those were all there last night. These are there. Okay, they're all there. I mean, I've got the app. Don't don't get me wrong. I've got the app and I can hold my phone up and go, these are new, these are old. You know, I've got that, right? But I don't do that every night. But these wise men are so familiar with the stars that they're going outside and they're recognizing a new one showing up. Stars don't make noise. When they appear, they don't make noise. Have you ever noticed? You see a shooting star in the sky, you don't hear, you know, you don't hear it. You don't hear that. You don't hear things. If a star flickers, a twinkling star, you don't hear, you don't hear that. You just see it. They don't make noise. Their eyes had to be open. They had to be paying attention to heaven. They had to be attentive to the heavenly realms. We saw a star. Everyone else is focused on this world and the things going on around them and on the government around them. And they're going, where's the baby? Where's the baby? Where's the star? We saw the star. We have come to worship. So they, they not only see a star, they not only, uh, they not only are attentive to it, they not only see the star, they, and they are humble towards it, saying this is, this is the king who is born, king of the Jews. They also make effort to come and worship him. They make an effort to come and worship him. It's not an easy journey to go anywhere east of Jerusalem, anywhere. Beyond the Jordan River, it's not an easy journey to get from there to Jerusalem. If you can imagine a map in your head, you've got Sea of Galilee, right? Jordan River, Dead Sea. Uh, from your perspective, you've got over here is Israel, the, the nation of Israel, the biblical nation of Israel. Over here is desert, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Iraq desert, and then beyond that, the east. These are guys from the east. This is a long journey. It's a long way. It's the same direction that Abraham was called out of when he's called out of Ur of the Chaldees. It's the same direction. They make effort to come worship the Lord. And they come in hopeful expectation did you notice they kind of act like they're late to the party? They, they kind of act like they're late. They say, we saw the star. We started coming. Where is it? And Herod's going, 
I didn't know he was here. They show up like they're late to the party, and they, they walk in, they're like, we know we're late, where's the king, let's get this started. And Herod's response is terrifying. So let's contrast the Magi with Herod here. The Magi, they are paying attention to the sky, they saw the star, they come in humble to worship the king of kings, and they come They put in effort to come. They bring gifts. And Herod, on the other hand, here in verse uh, 3, when Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from, him, from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod's response and the, people of, the Jewish people's response is to be scared. And honestly, they should be. They should be. Much like people who deny the gospel today ought to be very, very afraid. Because the king has come. And you have ignored him. You have ignored the signs in the sky and you've been so consumed with the Roman occupation and the census and taxes and all these Caesar moving and Herod, uh, the minor judge moving and the, the minor kings playing their games of chess and pawns that you have missed the reality that salvation has come and oh my goodness, you were not invited. should be terrifying. And what it should cause people to do is turn immediately and repent from sin and go, I'm sorry, Lord, forgive me. And run to find the king. What it does instead, what these wicked men do, is plan to wipe out the Messiah. So they are troubled. Herod and the Jews are troubled. They're shocked to attention. They're shocked to alertness. Because when somebody becomes a believer, everybody around them suddenly goes, what's happening? What's going on? I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but I have shepherded lots of people who have become believers and their entire family starts to flip out. What do you mean? What are you talking about? What do you mean you're going to go to church now? What do you mean you found religion? That's my favorite when they say things like that because they don't have the Christianese words. You know, they say, I found religion. I don't know, I guess I found religion. They suddenly got religious, started reading their Bible, believed. Those are great phrases. So these, they're shocked to attention and Herod immediately gathers the men and asks, where's this king supposed to be born? And he ends up calling them to him. They, he scrambles to grab hold and control something. He scrambles to grab hold and control something. Note the contrast. The Magi scramble to get there, show up late, so they can surrender stuff to the king. They bring gifts so they can lay them at his feet. 
Herod, on the other hand, scrambles to hold control. Look down at verse 7 after the prophecy is given. He says, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So he calls them secretly to have a secret meeting going, Hey, tell me when this star appeared. And he's putting on airs, he's putting on this act that he, is, that he wants to go worship. And he says, uh, And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you find him, bring me word so that I too can come and worship them. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, a star that they had seen when it rose went before them, and it came in the east, rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. When we come before Jesus, we are filled with joy, because he's the center of all joy. And going into the house, they saw a child with his mother Mary, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their, to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and warns Joseph. And Joseph flees to Egypt. And then jump down to verse 16. And Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So Herod intended to wipe this out and to kill this baby. Under two years old. Kill all of them. And so he he manipulates and tries to act out of his hate to destroy the prophecy, the, the promised king, and the fulfillment of God's plan. Compare those just one more time. The Magi who were looking for Jesus, see, search him out, give of great cost, letting go of their own riches. Herod, on the other hand, hears about this, having blinded his own eyes by focusing on the things of this world, hears of all of this, he's deeply troubled, and he decides he's going to scramble to try and hold power as best he can. And murders, goes on a murderous tirade. In Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, we read that at the beginning of the service, you have this picture of the king uh, being confronted by the prophet, and the prophet is talking about how he's a false ruler, how he's He's a poor ruler, and he's a false ruler throughout the book of Micah. And he's, he's saying how there are these kings on earth that, that are false, but don't worry, God's going to raise up a ruler from Bethlehem, a small town in the middle of nowhere. He's going to raise up this ruler, and this ruler is going to come and rule and save his people. Micah uh, thunders against false authorities and idolatrous leaders. If you read the book of Micah, he is screaming at the top of his lungs against false rulers, saying there's one God, one Lord, one Master, repent and believe or be destroyed. He's calling out and he's saying these things, and then we have here Matthew showing us that this ruler who was to come, that was going to save the Jewish people, is coming from that prophecy, from Bethlehem, God moves 
and the highest authority in the land to make this happen. Remember, we read in Luke that a census happens and Joseph and Mary have to begrudgingly go to Bethlehem. And they go, I say begrudgingly, it doesn't say, that's John's edition, but that's, they, they go to Bethlehem and they, they end up having this baby in a, in a stall in Bethlehem and, and uh, emergency situation. So get this, God uses... Caesar's decree, Quirinius' decree, that a census should be taken to get the Messiah born in an obscure town in the middle of nowhere. God uses a Roman authority to accomplish his own purpose. I wonder how that worked. I wonder if one morning Caesar just woke up and was like, we need a census on this day in that region. We need that to happen at this time. Somebody was like, we don't, we don't need a census of them. He's like, we're going to do a census. I'm Caesar. I'm in charge. We're doing a census. And then they're like, oh, we don't, I mean, we don't, uh, they're Jewish people. We don't, ha- we, do we have to require them to go back to their home? Make it so, you know, and then I don't know what they said, make it so, that sounds right. So they go and they do the census and the governor is doing the census and you got to imagine at some point, some level, some of these Roman authorities were like, why are we doing this census again? Oh, Caesar wanted to? Okay, you know, like the, you, you've got grumbling all over the place. Herod is going, we have to do a census, man. My people are going to be angry at me all the time. But, I mean, Caesar commands it. Caesar, for no rhyme or reason, other than to collect more taxes for fun, decides to do a census. God uses this. God made this happen. God in His sovereign power makes this happen. And He has a census here. God moves in the highest authority to accomplish His purposes of redemption. Note, the rulers of this world are merely pawns in the hands of God Himself. The rulers of this world are merely pawns in the hands of God Himself. Even things like mask wearing... And things like that are not out of the realm that God has ordained He's going to make them do. Even absurd taxation, even ridiculous stuff that happens in elections, even Supreme Courts making bad or good decisions are not outside of God's hand and control. The census was a nuisance. And no one liked it. And yet God uses it to find Jesus born in a in Bethlehem. We can look at the heavens and see the star and go, God's moving, I don't get it, it's over there, so I'm going to go worship Him. We can do that, like the Magi, or we can be upset like Herod and the Jews and be afraid of everything. Because, oh, God's moving and we missed it. So I want to be like the Magi then we've got the second prophecy here in verse 15. Uh, Herod, uh, Joseph flees to Egypt here because Herod is going to destroy him. And he's warned in a, in a dream that Herod wants to destroy the baby. And verse 14, And he arose and took the child and his mother and departed uh, to Egypt and remained there until 
the death of Herod. This was to fill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. This is the exact same uh, story that seems to happen in Moses when the Pharaoh murders a bunch of kids, uh, murders a bunch of children, and Moses is saved by the Nile River, being taken down the Nile River to the king of Egypt's house. And he gets protected and saved and rescued. And Hosea, chapter 2, verse 15, is where this prophecy is found. And Hosea is a love letter written to the people of God who are unloved, unloving and unloved. And God says, I will love you, you will be mine, and I will call that which is not mine, mine. And I will call that who has no mercy, I will call them mercy. So God redeems and rescues these people, and Hosea is written to the unloved, proclaiming the love of God. And throughout the book of Hosea, you have this theme that the exiles will be brought back into the land of God to worship the King of God, and God himself will do it. And out of Egypt, he will bring his own. Out of Egypt, he will bring his own. So he will rescue them from slavery and bring them out of Egypt. That's what this prophecy is saying, that Jesus is the one who is going to rescue them and lead them out of Egypt. He's going to lead them out of slavery, out of bondage to sin, and he's going to rescue them. Jesus will bring an exodus from oppressors. That's the message here. That's what Matthew is reminding the Jews of, that Jesus will bring an exodus from our oppressors. Note how he does it. He does it by rescuing you from sin and not removing you from the storms of this life, but placing you above them. There's that beautiful picture in the Psalms. You have taken me from the muck and mire and placed my feet upon a firm foundation, upon the rock. You have lifted me up and placed my feet upon the rock, and though my enemies encamp around me, I do not fear. There's this beautiful picture that God has placed us above the storms of life. Not that he takes all the storms away. Goodness knows we are in 2020 and storms tend to show up every two minutes. And if there's not a storm, the media makes one up for you. It's all over the place. And so he says here that he lifts us above. He is bringing, ex- ex- he's bringing exiles out into Exodus, into the Exodus away from our oppressors. The third prophecy here is from Jeremiah, verse 18. It says, a voice, in, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is the sad one. A result of the world rejecting Christ is death. The result of rejecting Jesus Christ is death. There is not another result. It doesn't, you don't get to be a good person and God go, well, you know, you're good, outweighs your bad. That's not how it works. You don't get to do a lot of good stuff and God goes, well, you know, you did these things, so I'm going to make you, I'm going to let you in. No. Rejection of Jesus Christ ends in death. That's what happens in this picture. Herod rejecting Jesus Christ and goes on this murderous tirade and kills and murders. And it's death. It's not even, it's not even justifiable death. It's just slaughter of innocence. Little kids 
to die. And I, I tell you, without Christ, so likewise all men will die and suffer death eternally. But there is hope for life in Jesus Christ the righteous. If we will trust in Him, we will have life and life eternal. If we trust in Him for salvation, believing that He lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, taking our place on the cross and being rescued, uh, and then dying um, three days in the tomb, rose again that you would have life and ascended into heaven, promising that He would come back in the same way. We will be saved and have life. This is life that Jesus gives. Sorrow is given by the world and weeping and gnashing of teeth and deep abiding sorrow in the face of death. But if Jesus, at Jesus' arrival, we have song and worship. The final prophecy given here is given up in verse 23. So if you'll jump to verse 23. Joseph and Mary go back to the land of Judah, and they, they show up and they hear that Archelaus, Archelaus, I don't know how to say his name, Archelaus, Herod's kid, um, is on the throne there, and he's nervous and worried, and he has another dream. Note, there are three dreams in this text that he has, um, each one warning him of something, and he follows all of them. This guy had a great napping life. Um, he slept well. And when he slept, he had dreams. So um, I don't know where you stand on this, and this is a side note, but you know, might behoove you occasionally to listen to the Lord before you go to bed and read your scriptures and, and get your mind in tune, because evidently he talks this way. Um, so just a heads up, that's neither here nor there, but listen to the Lord. Uh, so he... He goes back to Nazareth after being told in a dream not to return to Bethlehem. He goes back to Nazareth and he uh, comes to this prophecy in verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, uh, this is if you've got a reference Bible, this is void of the reference. right? Because that phrase in... The Bible is not actually in the Old Testament. He shall be called a Nazarene. Is not actually in the Old Testament. But this comes from a Hebrew derivative and the language. So the word Nazarene or Nazareth is a derived word from the word Nazirt, which is the word for shoot or sprout. From Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Out of the stump of Jesse shall come a shoot. Nazert. Out of the stump of Jesse shall come a shoot. He shall be called a shoot. That's what the prophet was saying in the Old Testament. That's what Matthew is referencing. He shall be called a shoot. This is a derivative. He's the one. This is the guy. This is the one that's going to come from the stump of Jesse, who's going to rescue everyone, who's going to set everything right, who's going to fix all the issues in the world. So, get your head where a Jewish believer, not a Jewish unbeliever, but a Jewish believer confronted with this would be. You're under Roman oppression. Rome has ruled over your nation for a long time. 
A long, long time. And they tax you like crazy. They set up their own idol factories. They sometimes have tried to force you to engage in their evil, wicked practices of worship, including, but not limited to, sacrifice and sexual immorality. They've tried to force these things, and they've tried to rule over you. You've got a king in Jerusalem who is lousy and worthless who keeps building up his own palaces and making sure that he's dressed in fine gold. And yet, he he does nothing to help you. You've got your tax constantly. You're, You're told to move from place to place. Your businesses are shut down on a whim because the government seems to want it to be so. You have to pay bribes in order to stay open often, and you have to... Uh, deal with crooked politicians left and right. The Pharisees are no help because they're just doing their job, walking around, making sure that they're the morality police, telling you what's right and what's wrong. The Sanhedrin are no help either. They're too busy debating whether or not theological issues should matter. And very few people are actually looking to the movement of heaven. And so Matthew writes this and says, God arranged it so a baby would be born in Bethlehem taken down to Egypt, and then sent back up to Nazareth, all for the purpose of saying, this is the guy. You understand, God did not have to go out of his way to show us who Jesus was. He did not have to go out of his way to make sure we saw who Jesus is. He could have put, it, he could have put a sign out on the side of the road... Jesus, and Jesus could have landed as a full-grown man with a scepter in his hand and said, bow, and everybody would bow. Jesus could have walked into the temple and said, all right, everybody's going to float until you believe. And they just all float in midair. And then as they believe, they get to walk. This is God incarnate, the Lord over the the heavens and the earth, the guy that tells the sea to stop moving. This is the guy that he's in a boat asleep and his disciples are panicking because they all think they're going to die in a storm. And he wakes up and he he looks at the waves and John Elkins remix looks at him and goes, hey, chill out. And the waves go. And the disciples who have been traveling with him for more than a year at this point look at him and go, who is this? Are you kidding Who is this? This is the same one who, when he's walking with his disciples for three years, one of them finally asks them, now do we get to destroy Samaria? And he rubs his eyes and goes, are you kidding me? Oh, don't you know who I am and who the Father? Good grief. Um, And he launches into this parable. This is the same one who, when the Greeks go, Please, sir, we want to see Jesus. He shows up and says, I'm he. This is the same one who, when the woman who's been bleeding for years reaches out to touch the hem of his robe, is healed. The same one who finds a a dead child in a bed and says, Hey, girl, get up. That's what Talitha Kum means. Hey, child, get up. And the kid rises from the dead. This is the same one who rescues us from sin. This is the same one. And these four prophecies in this chapter show us honor of the Magi versus the hatred of the rulers of this earth. It shows us 
the exodus of those who believe in Jesus Christ and are rescued from sins, and the exile of those who are stuck in their own sins and won't trust in him, Herod and the Jews, in this story. It shows us the difference between the song of rejoicing in the salvation of the Lord and the death of those who do not trust the gospel and the murderous intentions of the hearts of those who are wicked and consumed with self. It shows us the difference between the majesty and beauty of a sovereign God who arranges it so the shoot would be called a Nazarene just so you would see him versus the blind emptiness of the world around us. God uses His sovereign hand to manage and accomplish His own purposes. So Christian, are you nervous about where we are as a world right now? Are you unstable, uncomfortable with what's going on? Look to heaven. Look to heaven. Look to heaven and, and relax. Because God is moving, though you don't see Him. God is moving, even though the people of God are not attentive to it. God is moving, and He will show Himself great. He will show Himself mighty. And I guarantee these things that we see happening on the world are not apart from His hand. They're not away from Him. You know why it doesn't bother me who's going to be president? Because even if so-and-so is president, Jesus is still my king. And his kingship trumps any presidency. That was not on purpose. His kingship covers any presidency. Any presidency at all. I am not worried or fearing any man. I don't fear any man because I have seen the glory of the Lord and I have watched as he takes a census I've seen as he takes a census to drive a lowly family to a small town to give birth to a kid, then uses a murderous tirade to drive him down to Egypt for his own safety and security, then brings him out of Egypt for no other reason than to go, look, Exodus, look, there it is, Exodus, freeing you from slavery and sin, and then goes, oh yeah, he's supposed to be a Nazarene. So he shoots him over to the city named after Stump Shoot. How would you like that? You're, where are you from? Shoot. I'm from growth. Right? I'm from, I'm from branch. That's where I'm from. Shoot. I'm from sprout. So what's your name? Jesus of sprout. Jesus the Nazarene. Right? Jesus the Nazert. The shoot. All so God could say salvation has come. All of that happens so God could show you the Messiah. What a beautiful and glorious truth. Submit to it. Believe in it. Trust in Him.